Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Before we get started with our podcast, I do want to give a shout out to Tyler Vela at the Freed Thinker podcast. If you remember, Tyler was my debate partner in the Calvinist debate, and so sometimes we like to give shout outs to other podcasts, and so let's hear a few words from Tyler about his podcast, the Freed Thinker podcast on the Christus Victor Network. Hi, this is Tyler from the Freed Thinker podcast. Do you have an atheistic or a skeptical friend in your life who challenges you and your beliefs? Have you ever wondered about the passages in the Bible that talk about keeping slaves or about bears mauling children to the command of God? Or are you just generally interested in issues related to theology, biblical studies, philosophy, and apologetics? Well, if you're any of those, I would love to invite you over to the Freed Thinker podcast to explore some of our content that we have available. On the Freed Thinker, we engage in a philosophically robust manner with some of Christianity's most staunch critics. The Freed Thinker podcast is the place where freed thinkers can think freely. We are back with the Atonement podcast discussion that we had last time with my youth pastor, Andrew Hayes. And so, Andrew, welcome back to the podcast. All right. Thanks for having me back. We started to discuss the different theories of the atonement, and we did a biblical theology, and we only got through the Old Testament. And so in this podcast, we're going to deal with a lot of New Testament um, citations from the New Testament. But um, Andrew, why don't you give a uh, quote from a Facebook post that one of your former friends and roommates that you had in Bible college has posted that really illustrates kind of the differing views on the atonement and how a sly or a slippery denial of substitutionary atonement can sometimes be seen. Right. So he writes this, uh, Jesus healed many who presumably did not believe in him. When he healed, he healed out of the compassionate heart of his father. That was Jesus's primary mission, to reveal the father to the lost and bring them back to the understanding that God loves them, enough to, to even die for them. Christ's life and death were one big display of God's love for you. It seems that our gospel is sometimes composed in such a way to suggest that the Father presides as a judge only, and that he can only love and forgive you because Christ died for you. But the Father has not condemned you, he has forgiven you. You can walk in the peace and no rest today. Christ's work was not accomplished so that God could forgive you. Christ is the Father's forgiveness of sin. Now, there's a lot of truth to that statement, but there's also a clear denial of the need for wrath to be propitiated or the idea that Jesus would actually die to accomplish forgiveness. It almost seems that God already loves you and that there's no wrath to be removed. Right, and I would need to be in dialogue to know for certain, but it almost seems it's tending towards universalism. 
yeah, the idea that you're already accepted in Christ, you just don't know it yet, and so everybody's going to be saved. Right. So there's really, you know, it's just a recognition of what we already have, and it's not even necessarily a reception. It's just, oh, we are already saved because God is love, and he's already forgiven us. So let's uh, just review a little bit. In the last podcast, we defined penal substitutionary atonement, but some people may not have listened to the last podcast. So, Andrew, why don't you define that term again for us? Because that's really what we're arguing for, the biblical view of penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, and again, what we did last time is we defined it by the words. uh, Penal meaning penalty, uh, meaning like the penalty that is paid for our sin, and substitution, meaning that there's somebody in our place. So penal substitutionary, there's a person, Christ, who died in our place for our sins. And that's the really getting at the heart of what the Bible teaches on the atonement. Um, and that's probably the simple definition of it. Very good. And so last podcast, we looked at a, a number of Old Testament texts. And so we're just going to start diving into some uh, New Testament texts and see what the Bible says about penal substitutionary atonement. So, Andrew, what's our first text? Right. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, 21, says this. Uh, this is the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him this. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so verse 21 is really kind of the key text there, where it talks about uh, Jesus being the name. Now, we maybe aren't too familiar with what names mean, but in the Old Testament and New Testament, what a person's name was really did matter, because it said something about that person. And so what we have in the name Jesus is a transliteration. It's the Greek word for Joshua. So Joshua was the Old Testament name. Jesus is, it, is Joshua in Greek. And it means Yah saves or Yahweh saves. And so his name, even in his name, it's telling us why he's here. He's here to save. And so the question is, okay, what's he saving us from? Well, we're told Angel Gabriel says he will save his people from their sins. So there it is, his mission statement from the very beginning. Before he's even born, we're told why Jesus is coming. And it does talk about a definite atonement there. He will save his people from their sins, not hypothetical. He will try to save, he will attempt to save, he will make salvation a hypothetical possibility. It's very emphatic in the language that the, that the angel tells. He will save his people from their sins. Right, and so, you know, that's a good place to start before Jesus is even born. That's how he's heralded. Um, And so there's other things that we could say about this, but just for the sake of time, we'll move forward. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. And I think sometimes it gets a little confusing when we need to talk about Jesus' self-understanding. You know, like what did Jesus think of his own mission? And it's interesting in this particular passage, just prior to this, uh, his disciples has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and then he tells them this uh, in verse 21. From this time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So what happens afterwards, Peter says, you know, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't do that. And then Peter, and then Jesus says, 
this, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yeah, three times in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus predicts his death, and he says very emphatically, I must suffer many things at the hands of the elders and be killed and rise on the third day. And and that word suffer, especially in the Gospel of Mark and Matthew, um, it's the Greek word pacho, which we get the word the passion of the Christ, the suffering. It's the whole idea of the sacrificial lamb undergoing suffering that was what we looked at in the last podcast, especially imagery of Isaiah 53, where the lamb of God's going to be slaughtered. And so when when the synoptic gospel writers use that, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that word um, suffer many things, when Jesus uses that, it brings forth imagery of a sacrificial lamb suffering under the penalty of sin. Right, it should make us think of Isaiah 53, which is what we looked at last last time. And, you know, we should think of that. And when Peter begins to have this conversation with Jesus and tries to turn Jesus away from that mission of suffering, dying on the cross, rising three days later, Peter saying, hey, may it never be. And Jesus calls him Satan. Right. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, nobody, nobody will deter Christ from his mission of dying in the place for his people even one of his key disciples. Right. And so, anyway, I, I think it's just, again, another interesting part of this. Now, I, I think later on, Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I think this is an important verse, because we may not understand completely what this is talking about. But in 26, verse 39, Jesus is praying, and he says this, Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So what in the world does it mean when he talks about the cup? Because is he like talking about a drink? Uh, well, when you go back to the Old Testament, especially Jeremiah and Isaiah, the, 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 the major prophets, you see that the cup is a symbol for the pouring out of God's wrath. It's, it's a pouring out of God's judgment. So when Jesus uses the term cup, it's a euphemism. It's a metaphor for the wrath of God being poured out in fullness on him injustice in, in penal substitution on the cross. Right. And, and in this prayer, Jesus is saying, if it be possible. So in other words, if there is another way, let's do it. Like, I don't want to have to suffer this wrath if it's possible for any other way. And the implication is there isn't another way. Yeah, there is no other way that God has ordained to save his people from their sins, except for his wrath being poured out on a substitute in their place in the person of Jesus Christ. Right. And then later on, verse 42, you have his submission where he prays, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, that cup of God's wrath, your will be done. In other words, Jesus is submitting to the will of the father uh, in saying, look, if this is the way, okay, I will go with your will on this. I'll drink it to the, I'll drink the cup to the dregs, to the, to the very bottom. Yeah. And Mark, and so let's go to the book of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And Jesus says this in 1045, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a very kind of a key, key text there where Jesus is talking about his mission. He's he's talking about who he is as the son of man. And he says that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, you think of Jesus, he's the king of kings, even now, but he didn't come to be served by people. 
And that word ransom, we often get confused in our English translations because when we think of ransom, we think of, oh, uh, somebody kidnapped somebody and they're, they're holding them for ransom. But back in that day, in that culture, there were slave markets just in the culture of the day. And when you would go release a slave from slavery, you would pl- pay the slave owner the ransom price, a certain amount of money to, to free the slave. And so that, that um, word grouping in the Greek language, you get the word redemption, redeemed, ransom. It's all the same word grouping in the Greek language. It really means to, to buy or to purchase somebody out of bondage. And so um, when that word's used, especially by Paul, he borrows from the culture of the day, but makes spiritual connotations showing that we are in spiritual bondage to sin we are in slavery to sin, and through Christ's precious blood being poured out on the cross, he's bought us out of that condition through that ransom price of his blood. Not paid to Satan. No. We talked about that last time. Origin <laughs> right. and the early church fathers, it wasn't paid to Satan. It was a payment um, that, that was required because the wages of sin is death, and so the payment was made to release us from spiritual bondage. A ransom was paid. Right, and Jesus' self-understanding, he's, he knows he's here to save many through his substitutionary death. Um, you know, before we get to the book of Luke, I was as we were going through this, I, I realized that we should probably talk about the Lord's Supper. Yes. Because uh, the Lord's Supper deals with a lot of these uh, images. And Mark's version is Mark chapter 14. In verse 22, he says, says this, And as they were eating, this is during the Passover, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So in the Lord's Supper, we have the, the, the imagery of a broken body and poured out blood for many. Yeah, and it harkens back to the whole issue of the Passover in the Old Testament that we looked at last time, that the sacrificial lamb was slaughtered, and the blood of the lamb was put on the lintel and doorpost to protect the Israelites from their firstborn son being destroyed by the destroyer, Jesus reinterprets that and says, this is the new covenant in the blood. I am the Passover lamb. My body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be poured out as a sacrifice to propitiate God's wrath. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're commemorating my death on the cross, the blood of the covenant being poured out for many. So really, every time that we practice communion uh, on a Sunday morning or whenever we, our, your church happens to practice communion, we're demonstrating visually and through what we're tasting and what we're consuming the substitutionary death of Christ. So we're imaging that every time that we, we do that. Yeah, we're preaching a visual sermon. Paul even says every time you do this, you proclaim his death until he comes. You're preaching the death of Christ in a visual way when we take the Lord's Supper. We're, we're, we're actually seeing the body and blood in the elements, but we're also ingesting those, showing that we are to taste and see that the Lord is good and remember that sacrifice. Right, and so the, the Lord's Supper, again, you know, it's a very important ordinance that we are to practice as a church for that very reason, because it helps remind us why Jesus died. Exactly. All right, so at the end of the book of Luke, and I know we've, we're going over a lot of material, Jesus, he gives the Great Commission of Luke. Often we talk about the Great Commission, we think of Matthew 28, but he gives a version of it here in, at the end of Luke, uh, verse 44 through 47. And Jesus said to them, 
these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So here we have Jesus telling the disciples their mission uh, after his resurrection. And it's interesting, before he even really begins to explain what it is to understand about the scriptures, he, he tells them that everything that was written in the law, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. You know, that uh, really it harkens us back to what we were talking about last week. You know, yeah. Jesus is saying, hey, all that stuff that was going on in the Old Testament, that was about me. Those were types and shadows of what I, what my mission was. And just a side note, too, there in verse 45, when it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, that is a Greek word that means to exposit or to exegete. And so in a way, Jesus took the Old Testament scriptures, and we don't have record of how he did this. I would have loved to see how he did this, but he exposited, he expounded, he exegeted the scriptures with those disciples, showing how he is the fulfillment of all those things. And after doing that, he turns around and says, okay, now that you know that the whole Old Testament is about me, your mission is to go preach the repentance of from sin and the forgiveness of sins that is found in me because I will suffer, because I've suffered on the cross, I've died, I've risen, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is what you must preach. And when you go look at the sermons in Acts, you find out that almost all of the early apostolic sermons in Acts take this model. They exposit the Old Testament scriptures and show their fulfillment in Christ. And then at the end of those messages, Peter, Philip, Stephen, Paul, they preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right, and Jesus is saying that Old Testament, whole Old Testament is pointing, pointing to me. Yeah, exactly. All those types and shadows, everything that we looked at in the, in the last podcast. So that's the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And just a, a side note, um, just for listeners, when we talk about the word synoptic, um, it, it's a good word for you to know. Synoptic means through the same eye or through the same lens. You get that word optic. And so the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, often tell some of the same stories. They tell some of the same events. Uh, they're very similar in how they're set out. Um, that's why they're called synoptic. Then you get to the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, and John is totally different. His is more theological in nature. He focuses on the seven I am statements of Christ. Um, he focuses more on the Old Testament imagery of the temple and the sacrificial system right. and Passover. And so um, we move into to the fourth gospel, and John's language is a little bit more metaphorical, drawing us back to the Old Testament. Right, and so one of the first scenes that we have in John is in chapter 1, verse 29, and his cousin, John the Baptist, sees Jesus passing by, and John points him out, and he says this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here we have John, Jesus' cousin, recognizing Jesus and saying, look, that's the, the Lamb of God. Now, again, that's, that's calling us back to the Old Testament imagery because they would understand when he's calling Jesus the lamb that it was a sacrificial lamb. The, right. And so, you know, he's saying, okay, at this sacrificial lamb is going to take away sins. Yeah, it's the whole idea of, and that word take away means to remove. It's, it's again, the idea, of, that probably is more the idea of expiation, the removal of sin, the taking away of sin, the lifting away of sin through, through sacrifice. Um, when you get to John chapter 10, 
and I've just been preaching on this recently, so it's fresh in my mind. You have Jesus using the metaphor of being the good shepherd. And then John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Down in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. This whole idea of the shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. Now, laying down the life, it's, it's very interesting. That terminology is really only um, used by John. It's not really found elsewhere in the New Testament, but it's the right. whole idea of substitution because you have the Greek preposition, huper. And so, Andrew, you are a seminary graduate that has taken Greek. What does the Greek preposition huper mean there? We, we see it just for the sheep in our English translations, but really, what's the power in that preposition, huper? It, means like in the place of, uh, as a substitute for, um, you know, we, in English, we, we have one word for it that there's a whole range of meaning, but the whole idea is in the place of, yeah, as a substitute for in the place of, in the stead of. And so Jesus, even in the Greek preposition, what's implied in there is substitution that Jesus died in the place of. And what does it say there? The sheep, emphatic, the sheep, not the goats, the sheep. So, so you mean that Jesus didn't die for everyone? I'm saying that Jesus only <laughs> died for the sheep. Right. And the sheep hear his voice, and the sheep will come. Right. I, and, and, you know, and it's Jesus' mission. This is what Jesus is saying, that it's for the sheep. And, you know, it's, it's very clear that that's what he sees, is that, hey, this is my life as a substitute for my sheep. And by the way, just go down to verse um, 26. He's talking to the Pharisees there. He says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, that's a a strong statement that a lot of people don't want to deal with. Why is the, most people would say, here's how you become a sheep. You become a sheep after you believe. Jesus turns it around and says, no, the reason you're not believing is because you're not a sheep. You're not among the elect. If you were among among the elect, you would be believing because the sheep hear the voice. The reason you're not hearing the voice, the reason you're not believing, you're not among the elect. You're not a sheep. Really, this implies ability. You know, like they don't have the ability to believe because they're not the sheep. And they would be dead in their sins, and nobody has the ability to believe unless God draws them. And who's he going to draw? Is he going to draw goats to himself? He's going to draw sheep. Because Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. sheep. All right, now we're happy Calvinists. Let's move on. (laughs) All right, so John chapter 15, uh, verses... Uh, Verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So here we have Jesus saying, look, I'm I'm talking about love here, and there's no greater love than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to lay down my life. And there's again our preposition for, in the stead of, in the place of my friends. And then Jesus looks at the disciples and says, you are my friends. Right. It's almost a repetition of what we just saw in John chapter 10. The image there is sheep, the shepherd and the sheep. 
Here is the image of the, the friendship. And so Jesus lays down his life in the place of, in the stead of, who pair for his friends. Right. And, and you know, and Jesus is like, look, you, I called you servants, but now you're beyond, becoming beyond servants. You're my friends. Right. That's a great imagery of the intimacy that God has for us in Christ. That we, have, we, are, we have union with Christ as his friends. Yeah, and connected to that, which I think is interesting, one of the evidences that Jesus did choose us and lay his life down for us is there's an obedience that follows after, afterwards. There's a changed life. Right. It's a, there's evidence of regeneration in the sense that we will follow Christ in obedience. Right. Now we're going to go to the book of Romans. Um, do we want to do, do Acts? Oh, yeah, we can go to Acts. Okay, you have some things written down here on Acts. <laughs> so Acts, Acts chapter 2, very first sermon that, uh, the apostle Peter preached. So the Holy Spirit comes, and everybody's trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And Peter begins to preach a sermon. And he says this in the middle of his sermon, at chapter 2, verse 22, says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and sign, signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter is looking at this crowd that is kind of gathered, trying to figure out what's going on, and he begins to explain that the reason that uh, this is going on, the Jesus of Nazareth, and he was delivered up. And this idea of being delivered up is Jesus is causing this deliverance for his people. And this is a, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this is God's plan all along is for Jesus to give, his, give of his life. Yeah, you see two aspects in this passage of Scripture. You see the sovereignty of God in the predestined plan to have Christ crucified. But you also see the um, accountability and responsibility of lawless men who actually put to death Christ. And so... You know, Pilate was responsible, Herod was responsible, the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross, the Jews who had the kangaroo court of, of trying Jesus um, unlawfully. Those men are responsible for literally carrying out the death of Christ, but it was God's predetermined, sovereign, predestined plan that that would happen. It was God's will to crush him, as Isaiah 53 tells us. Right, and and so here, the very first sermon, he, Peter is talking about, okay, this is God's, this is what God wanted, it's deliverance, and we have the resurrection afterwards. And then later on, verse 36, he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's kind of a side note, Peter's pretty confrontational, <laughs> you can almost see him saying, you guys did this. You crucified him. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's laying the gauntlet down, looking him right in the eye and saying, you are responsible for this. But it's interesting because in verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be, or what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. And so um, obviously the Holy Spirit was moving and bringing conviction to that non-seeker-sensitive sermon that Peter <laughs> preached. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, there's titles that show up several times. The Lord in Christ. And so we haven't really talked about what, what that might mean, but I think in particular worth, worth mentioning is this idea of, of Lord. You know, Lord was a title that was usually for, for Caesar um, back, back in the New, New Testament times. It meant that 
we were you're supposed to make a confession that Caesar is Lord. And so Peter flips that and says, no, you know who really is the Lord, who really is the King of Kings? It's Jesus. Right. As a matter of fact, in that ancient culture during that time with the Roman emperors, in most of the cities, especially the Greek cities, you had to go once a year dip a pinch of incense on the altar of Zeus or whoever, and you had to make a public confession that the emperor was both Lord and God. And so most Christians, obviously, would have a major problem with that. They're not going to go confess their allegiance to Caesar as Lord and God. That's only reserved for Jesus Christ, who is ultimate Lord and God. Right. And so that's the title that they give him, is they flip it and said, no, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is. Exactly. And then they're also calling the Christ, which we may be more familiar with the term Messiah or anointed one. And so maybe we, we should talk about what that means, anointed one. Uh, in the Old Testament, you anointed kind of two, two different things, kings and prophets. And priests. priests. So I guess three things. Yeah, yeah so we, we would anoint three, three uh, different offices in the Old Testament. And so uh, Peter's like, okay, Jesus is this ultimate anointed one of God. So let's just stop there and talk about the threefold role of Christ um, that really John Calvin pretty much in the Institutes of the Christian Religion articulated and really brought to the forefront the role of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, you see prophets being anointed with oil as a symbolic way of setting them apart. And what did the prophet do? He proclaimed the word of God. Yeah. Okay, Priests were anointed um, the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. What did the priests do? They were the ones who administered the sacrifice. sacrifice. Kings were anointed, like King David, and they were the ones who ruled. So you had three different groupings of people that were anointed. Interestingly enough, in the Old Testament, there was never one individual person that fulfilled all three roles. You never had a prophet who was a king, or a priest who was a king, or a king who was a prophet. But when Jesus comes along as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, he fulfills all three of those Old Testament roles. As the prophet, why is he the prophet? Because not only does he preach the word of God, he is the living word, word of God. Yeah. As the priest, he comes not only to offer the sacrifices, but to give of himself as a sacrifice. As the king, he is king of kings and lord of lords. So when you take the name Messiah or Christ, you really need to think about the threefold office of the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And then when you add Jesus to that, Jesus Christ, that means salvation is of the Lord. So he is the anointed one who brings salvation of the Lord as the prophet, priest, and king. Right, and that's why Peter says in verse 38, for the that we need to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. It, yeah, yeah. and in a, in a second sermon in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which we must say, be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. And so we're saved in the name of Christ. Right. Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 3, which um, is really <laughs> a very powerful passage of Scripture. Um, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, we have really two key words that talk about substitutionary atonement. Um, and when we look at these two words, I want to focus, the words are redemption and propitiation. Those two words show up in here. But uh, when we get to the word propitiation, I want us to, to, to look at a, um, some words from Martin Lloyd-Jones in, in an awesome sermon that he preached called Propitiation. It's actually from, you can go actually listen to the sermon on the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust, or you can go get it in the Banner of Truth commentary series um, in the book of Romans, but it's the sermon Propitiation that he preaches on Romans 3.25. But Andrew, read those passages of scripture for us. 
Right. It says this, uh, 3, starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as the gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, before I guess we get in really looking into this passage, it's worth mentioning Paul basically from Romans one eighteen up to 3.20 has been showing over and over and over again, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you stand underneath the wrath of God. Yeah, and you cannot attain any type of righteousness in and of yourself. You, your righteousness is as filthy rags, you're dead in sin, your, your mouth is stopped and held accountable because you are toast. Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, 19, he says this, so that the every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. Right. So the question that Paul brings up is, okay, if that's true, if we are unrighteous, if we are um, in a state of sin, how in the world can we be accepted before a righteous God? How can a holy and righteous God accept us in his sight? How will we ever be in right standing with God? And really, Verse 21 through 26 answers the question how God can vindicate his righteousness and make us righteous at the same time. And the answer is in, it's in the cross. Right. You know, and that, that phrase, righteousness of God, Martin Luther struggled with that. This is, you know, we're approaching our 500th anniversary. Reformation Day is coming up pretty soon. Martin Luther really struggled with that idea of righteousness of God. And he would write uh, of that tower experience where he would he was studying that phrase, righteousness of God, thinking that, oh, this is the righteousness by which God judges me. Right. And so that scared him because he knew that he was not, he was toast, that that was right. the case. And if you, if you really study the righteousness of God through faith, there, that preposition there really means um, source or the source of the righteousness comes from God. What he's speaking of there is what we would call an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of us that God imputes to us as a gift. Not a righteousness that we produce, but a righteousness that God gives us in Christ in the cross. An alien righteousness, outside righteousness. That's what the righteousness of God is. Yeah, and Martin Luther, when he began to understand this, because in the Roman Catholic system, that's not how it worked. You had to earn it. Right. It, it was, yeah, you, you had to earn the righteousness, and if you didn't, you would receive the just penalty of your sin from a righteous God. Yeah, and Martin Luther even would go as far as, like, I began to hate God yeah. for this. Yeah, he would bang his head against the wall. I mean, he, he went through a serious crisis of faith where he would, you know, uh, under the thundering, um, you know, I, I can't remember exactly how he described it, but just the whole wrestling he did with God where it brought him to really, you know, hate and fear God as a tyrant. Right, but then he began to realize, wait a second, this isn't the righteousness that I earn. This is the righteousness that God gives to me. And he describes like an awakening that rushes over him. Yeah, and, and you see that in the text because it says here, it's a righteousness of God or from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So there's the whole idea. This, this justification, this imputed righteousness from God is given to us as a gift. Now, how does that happen? Through 
the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. There's that word that we saw earlier, ransom, redemption, redeemed. Um, Again, it's the whole idea of buying us out of spiritual bondage through the blood of Christ. Right, and it's, you know, also this idea of gift language. We sometimes, uh, sometimes we try to make faith into a work. Like, that's something you have to do, but you receive it by faith. And maybe using an analogy can help you understand, like, when when you give Christmas gifts to, to your kids, you don't expect them to earn it. Right. You just, you give it to them for the, to receive because it would look really silly. Like, oh, thank you for the Christmas present. Now I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to take out the trash. I'm going to go wash some dishes. I'm going right. to do my chores. and do all this stuff, and then I'll receive the gift. Well, and it's important to remember that faith is the instrument of receiving salvation, but it's not the basis. We are not saved because of our faith. We're saved through faith. And Paul even says that faith is a gift of God. It's something that God even gives to us. Um, The ground of our salvation is actually in Christ and what he's done in his imputed righteousness. The big word there, though, is propitiation. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Um, Now, let's just deal with a little bit of of statements from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his um, sermon Basically, when he was dealing with this text, he called it the Acropolis of the Bible and the Christian faith. I mean, he, he looked at this as the most powerful um, statement that, that could be said about the cross. And so he, he really was giving a polemic against what was going on in the 50s when he wrote this, of how the translations use the word expiation as opposed to propitiation. Right. And he actually mentions two scholars in the debate, C.H. Dodd, Um, C.H. Dodd was a British scholar in the Greek New Testament, um, more of a liberal. He was the one that was really taking the word expiation. Um, Leon Morris out of Australia, Apostolic Preaching of the Cross, an excellent book. We'll talk about that later. Um, That book was um, basically a rebuttal to C.H. Dodd's use of the word expiation where Leon Morris said, no, there needs to be a corrective. It needs to be the word expiation propitiation, not expiation. And so um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, that the wrath of God shows up 580 times in the Old Testament alone. He says, quote, if you go through the Bible without theories and preconceived notions, you will see at once that the notion that God is angry against sin, that God hates sin, that the wrath of God is upon sin is taught everywhere and is a basic proposition. And then he makes this rather humorous remark. He says, quote, if you take out of the Bible the idea of the wrath of God against sin, there's very little Bible left, (laughs) unquote. And so he really does a great job, and I would encourage you to go listen to that sermon. He unpacks the meaning of propitiation. It's the Greek word helisterion, which really does mean a turning aside or an absorbing of God's wrath against sin. Not just a putting it away, but Jesus actually absorbed it in his body. Right, and and, you know, when you read the whole paragraph... That fits. You know, the, the whole paragraph is describing it because this is the key thing. And, you know, maybe we, in the Old Testament, one of the questions is, you know, in a famous passage when God begins to explain to Moses who he is, he says, I am the God who, is, who shows steadfast love and faithfulness and patience, but will by no means clear the guilty. How's he going to do that? Exactly. And that's the ultimate question. Most people do not wake up every morning saying, why am I not under God's wrath? But that's the ultimate question everyone should ask. How can God be both just and the justifier? That's the question Paul says there. How can God uphold his justice against sin and at the same time accept us as not guilty in his sight? How does that happen? What's the answer to that? Well, and that's what this paragraph is describing is it's Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. 
And so when God looks at us, he can give the verdict, not guilty, you are righteous in Christ, instead of us receiving that just punishment. Yeah, God can be just in the sense that he punishes sin in Christ. He's just. Sin has to be punished. He can't wink at it. He can't brush it under the carpet. Sin must be punished. How did he do that? How was God just? He punished it in Christ. How can God be the justifier? How can we be accepted? Through the cross. And then the benefits of that is the imputed righteousness of Christ to us and justification that makes us acceptable and not guilty. And this is really what the whole Protestant Reformation was over because Roman Catholics look at that as a legal fiction. They would say, how can you actually be declared righteous when in fact you're not? It must not be an imputed righteous. It needs to be an infused righteous, a, a righteousness that comes in you through the sacraments that can fluctuate, not an alien righteousness that's once and for all through Christ's atonement. Right, so there's always something to do in the Catholic system. There's a sacrament to be paid, there's a penance to be done, a mass to go to. And let's talk about the mass. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people know what the Catholic mass is, but if you go back and read the the Catholic, um, especially um, not necessarily the Council of Trent or Vatican I and II, but the Catholic Catechism of the Church that was written in the 80s, it was like a treatise on a lot of the Catholic doctrine, they actually describe what is going on in the mass, in the Eucharist. In the Eucharist, the vicar of Christ, the priest, actually pulls Jesus down from heaven onto the table, sacrifices him afresh, and you literally eat of his physical body and blood. So you have a not completed atonement. You have an impotent Savior that's being pulled down by a human, and you have him being sacrificed over and over again in the Mass for our sins and incomplete atonement. Really, when you think about the Mass, it really is a blasphemy against the finished work of Christ. That's a strong statement to say, but really, if you look at what the Mass is, it is a blasphemy against the finished work of Christ. Well, and if you look at the Protestant Reformers, they called it idolatry. Exactly. Anytime the Mass is performed, we have idolatry taking place. Yeah, I mean, John Calvin, when he wrote the letter uh, to Emperor Charles V, the necessity for the uh, Reformation, one of the issues he dealt with there was the sacraments, and he said that the, the Catholic Eucharist, the is idolatry right and and when you think about it it really does it really diminishes what jesus did on the cross it really pulls it down from what it what it should be all right well let's keep moving on for the sake of time let's go into second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 right so this really we were talking about imputation this verse really deals with that idea of imputation and paul writes this for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we got to kind of define who the he and him and sin, you know, everybody is. So the he is God. He made him, God made him, which is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is describing here just what is taking place uh, on, on the cross, what is going on with this idea of the atonement and what is this describing is that God took our sin and laid it on Jesus. Right. Let's just describe imputation because, again, we have huper in that verse. It starts out, for our sake. That's the Greek preposition huper. I mean, right there, it's a more literal translation, for our sake, in our place, as our substitute. So you've got the, the Greek preposition huper. What did God do? God made him to be sin. Now, let's, let's just be real careful. Does that mean that Jesus became a sinner? Did that mean that Jesus took on the nature of sin? No, that's not what it means. It means that in those moments when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God imputed 
or reckoned or accounted our sins to Jesus so that Jesus would be treated as a sinner because of our sin. Because it says right there, he had no sin. So it wasn't that he became sin in the sense that he became a sinner. Our sins were reckoned to him. They were imputed to him. They were counted to his account so that God could punish those sins in Jesus. And then on the flip side, when we trust Christ for salvation, that righteousness of Christ is imputed to us so that we stand not guilty. So really you see a double imputation. You see our sins going to Christ and his righteousness going to us so that we can be not guilty before the Father. Right, and this chapter, this paragraph is describing reconciliation. And that's another thing that Jesus did on the cross. What does reconciliation assume? Reconciliation means that we have two opposing parties that are at war, that are at odds with each other, and to be reconciled means that we are brought back together. Yeah, reconciled means that we were once alienated or hostile in mind, and God has, has reconciled us. So when you think about, let's just think about these images we've used so far. Um, propitiation is really the wrath of God being appeased. It's really Jesus appeasing the wrath of God. Reconciliation is the idea that we were at odds with God and Jesus has brought us back into a relationship of peace. Redemption is we were in spiritual bondage to sin and Christ has released us from that so that we can be in spiritual freedom. So there's a lot of dimensions to what Christ did on the cross by the use of these Greek words, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation. There's a a fully orbed view of what Christ is doing on the cross in our salvation. Right. And... I, let's uh, let's look at one more passage. I think we have time for one more. First sure Timothy chapter one. We've got time. Let's keep going. <laughs> Verse fifteen. For, what is it? First Timothy one fifteen. One fifteen. Now this one I think is really interesting because Paul, just the way that Paul phrases it, he says this: the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul is saying, all right, this is really, really, really important. Pay attention to what I'm going to tell you here, Timothy. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And it goes back to what angel Gabriel said to Joseph. You will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Paul here says Jesus came into the world to do what? Save Save sinners. sinners. Um, And assuming that sinners need to be saved from their sin. Sin, because sin is what makes us sinners. Right. It's not because we've, you know, some people think of, when we describe sin, maybe we should think about sin for a second here, because we haven't really described it. Yeah, let's describe sin. Because I think it's important for us to understand what we're talking about, because in our modern terms, sometimes people describe sin as like a state state of mind or like a feeling. But when we talk about sin, it has multiple dimensions in Scripture. One of the main ones is, transgressing God's law or violating God's law, mm-hmm. which is why it becomes, in R.C. Sproul's terms, cosmic treason, which is not a good place to be. So what's treason? Treason is you are violating the king. You are doing something against the king's kingdom. You are betraying the king. And it's cosmic in the sense that it's, it's, on a, it's against the king of kings. Right. And, you know, we, we understand that there's degrees of punishment related to the degree of authority that we have. You know, for example, if I lie to a friend, I might lose a friend. But if I lie to a judge, I can get thrown in jail. Or if I lie to the president and I lie to the country, I could even be possibly killed. Right, for treason. Right. And it's interesting because when we think about the word sin and sins, the Bible addresses two different aspects of that. 
we are sinful by nature because we've inherited original sin from Adam. We are born in a state of guilt, which in turn causes us to actually commit sins, plural. So we are actually guilty of a condition right. and also guilty of actions. And so when we think about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, it's not just the actual individual sins that we've committed. Hebrews says it goes down to cleansing our consciences in the sense that the death of Christ on the cross actually goes and overcomes original sin that we have in Adam and cleanses us from the inside out to overcome original sin and the actual sins that we commit. So there's, there's, yeah. that's kind of the cosmic aspect of it. it. It's not just the individual sins we commit in rebellion. It's our actual nature as depraved that causes us to sin that Christ also died for. Right, you know, and sin's one of the most universally proven things. We don't have to do very much to prove sin because I don't have to teach little kids how to be selfish and to hit their brothers and sisters. Exactly. And so let's go to Hebrews because Hebrews gives us some of the greatest imagery of Jesus being the high priest. And Hebrews is a difficult book because if you don't know your Old Testament, especially the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood, you can get a little... um, fumbled up in some of the meanings of the book of Hebrews, but there's some great statements. The first one is in Hebrews 7, 25. Uh, just, I think it's the most, one of the most powerful verses in Hebrews that talks about Jesus as our high priest and what he's done. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Um, some translations use that word innermost um, completely to the end. It's the idea that because Jesus had a completed, finished work on the cross, he died for his people, and now in heaven he's interceding for those people at the right hand of the Father because it was a finished work for his people. He's able to save to the uttermost. Right, and the author of Hebrews is really, the, the theme is the superiority of Christ. Yes, Christ is better. Yeah, and so why go back to all that Old Testament system when Jesus died once and for all, uh, and it's a completed, finished work? In, in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 22, very key verse in Hebrews, I think, or just describing how everything sure. works, says this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I don't think it gets any clearer than that. Yeah, and one of the things that you go, when you look at Hebrews, you realize that when you go back to especially Numbers and Leviticus, and maybe we talked about this on, on the last uh, podcast, um, only high-handed only unintentional sins were covered in the Day of Atonement, not right. high-handed sins. And when Jesus talks about, or the writer of Hebrews here talks about Jesus being a better sacrifice, he not only covers in unintentional sins, but he covers intentional sins. His sacrifice covers all sins. It gets to the purging of the conscience to where it's a complete atonement that covers all sins for his people. Uh, and it's done through the shedding of blood. Which... Uh, the blood in Old Testament says is kind of a symbolic way to describe the whole life of right. that of that person or right. of that animal. Yeah, and blood's not. I mean, some people kind of get caught up on there's something magical about the blood. Um, blood is really a metaphor for the giving of the life that Christ gave the entirety of His life. Right. So let's go to Hebrews ten uh, verses eleven through fourteen. Okay, it says this in the every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins but when christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of god waiting for 
that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A powerful verse of scripture there. Yeah. It's got the idea of once and for all single sacrifice, and he's perfected. Yeah. It's the finished work of Christ. It's, it's not hypothetical. It's not a... Um, potentiality it's that jesus has literally perfected once and for all his people on the cross right and and at the end of verse 12 we're we're told that he sat down now we don't understand what that means but it means that it was done like his work is finished yeah when you go back to the old testament sacrificial system and you look at the holy of holies and you look at the tabernacle there was all this type of furniture and the, the priest had to keep the bread of presence going he had to keep the incense burning he had to make sure all this stuff was going on there was one piece of furniture that was not in the holy of holies and it was a chair because the priest could never sit down because his always he was always doing work so when it says jesus sat down the imagery is he sat down not because he's tired he sat down because the work is completed, and he's making his enemies a footstool under his feet. Right, and so, again, it's a single sacrifice once for all. That word perfected also means completed or, I guess, complete maturity, you could even say. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a definitely done deal. Yeah. Well, let's go to the final book of the Bible, which is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, actually, is, is Revelation chapter 5. Um, and so let's read verses 9 through 10. It's the new song to the Lamb of God on the throne. So let's re- read this for us, Andrew. All right. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Okay, why is he worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Yeah, that word slain means slaughtered. Right. You were slaughtered. And let's just talk, let's talk about particular redemption in this passage of Scripture. Let, let's read this carefully. Did Jesus ransom every single person from every single tribe, nation, or people? It says you ransom people, a, a people, you know, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not everyone. Prepositions matter. You ransom people for God from, it's the Greek preposition ek, which means out of. out of. yeah. And so it doesn't say that Jesus purchased every single person. It says he purchased people for God out of every tribe. So there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation at the throne in heaven that Jesus paid for um, because he bought them with his blood. Right, and you know what's interesting about this in this chapter 5, the imagery that we didn't read ahead of time, is that there's a scroll that needs to be opened and nobody's found that's able to do this. And then and there, uh, someone tells John, hey, don't weep. There's the lion from the tribe of Judah. And then he looks and it's a lamb who looks like it's been slain. Yeah, so which is it, John? Is it a lion or a lamb? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the, the, the and so he sees there. Jesus, at, you know, who is slain for his people. So we have seen from Genesis to Revelation a biblical theology of penal substitutionary atonement which I think is very helpful just to, we haven't gone in great detail in these passages of Scripture. We just really want to do an overview to show you that this is a repeated theme in the Scriptures. And oftentimes it's helpful for our listeners to know what resources they can read or where, where they can go to get more teaching on the atonement. So what I'd like to do is just go, go through briefly a list of, of books that have been helpful to me, and maybe you can add some others. But um, one of the ones, and, and we got this free the last time we went to Together for the Gospel a couple years ago, was from Heaven. And he came and sought her 
a definite atonement in historical, biblical, and theological, and pastoral perspective. Uh, this is the granddaddy of books recently <laughs> on limited right. atonement, uh, articles by you know, John Piper and... Um, you, you kind of have the, Ferguson the and, who's who. It's an anthology. You know, it's yeah. a collection of articles. Yeah. So that, that would be an excellent resource. Um, the other book that's a classic, even if you just read the introductory essay by J.I. Packer, it's worth its weight in gold. It's a dense book. It's an old book, but it's, it's John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Um, you may have to get a, um, a dictionary to read this and spend some time <laughs> laboriously going through this, but it's worth it. Um, the Death of Death in the death of Christ. One of the books, that's, that's, it's, it's a little bit older, but it's, it's kind of similar to um, the book that we just mentioned, he, Heaven, He Came and Sought Her. This is from InterVarsity Press. It's called The Glory of the Atonement. And it does take you, kind of like what we did, it takes you through atonement in the Old and New Testaments, and then it takes you through the atonement in church history. And it's got articles from D.A. Carson and J.I. Packer and others in there. It's called The Glory of the Atonement. Again, it's a, more of an anthology on that. Um, InterVarsity Press has put together these really good books called Contours of Christian Theology. They have all different types of, of subjects. And Robert Lethem has written a book called The Work of Christ, and he delves in great detail with basically the different theories of the atonement, the nature of the atonement. He gives a really strong case for the intent of the atonement. That, that last chapter, um, the last chapter in there, not the last chapter, but um, one of the chapters in there talks about the intent of the atonement, it, again, is worth its weight in gold because he really gives a great definition of particular redemption. Actually, it's in the appendix, the intent of the atonement. Um, one of the recent books also, I think this came out maybe five or six years ago, um, it's called Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. It's forwarded by John Piper. This is written by some British theologians who were really um, counteracting what we talked about, Stephen Chalk, that uh, the penal substitution is, is akin to cosmic child abuse, and these guys are like, no, that's not what it is. And so these British guys have written a book, Pierced for Our Transgressions, where they go through, again, a biblical theology of the idea of atonement, penal substitution, uh, a very good book there. A classic, John Stott, The Cross of Christ. Uh, this should be in everybody's library. I think anything by John Stott needs to be in everybody's library. Um, he, probably one of my favorite um, theologians. He's a pastor theologian. I just like the way that he's written things very clearly and concisely. Um, but the cross of Christ is a classic. Um, J.I. Right. Packer and Mark Dever have put together a little book called In My Place Condemned He Stood. And it's really an anthology of sermons and articles from other different um, sources. But uh, J.I. Packer and Mark Dever put this together to really uh, bring back the idea of substitutionary atonement. And then probably one of the better books... Again, I referenced this in the, Mar in, in the Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon is The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross by Leon Morris. Um, this is a really good book because what he does is he takes every motif, especially Greek word, like the Greek word for redemption, the Greek word for blood, propitiation, reconciliation, justification, and he builds a case from the actual usage of that Greek word why substitutionary atonement is the biblical view. So those are some good books. I don't know, Andrew, what are some books you've you found beneficial or some resources? Right. Um, you know, almost any, almost any good systematic theology will have a great section on the atonement, uh, be it Groom systematic theology. It just if you want a kind of an abridged, shorter version of the atonement and just some of the issues with it. Um, 
some other books that I found that are helpful, B.B. Warfield's The Person and Work of Christ. Mm-hmm. Warfield's kind of a theological giant. Um, it's a little dense, but again, it's, it's worth, if you go through it, it's worth it. Most of those B.B. Warfield things you can get on monergism.com. I've got the complete works of B.B. Warfield in, in hardback, but I think most of those essays and articles you can find on monergism.com or just do a Google search for B.B. Warfield's um, work. Yeah, yeah, and The Death of Death, you can find that because it's public domain. You can find that online. Yeah, I would encourage you, if you really want to read a great little essay um, on limited atonement, J.I. Packer's introduction to The Death of Death, you, I definitely can get that on Monergism. Go to monergism.com you can, and just type in limited atonement or atonement. It'll bring you a lot of different resources there. Right, and you know, I, I think uh, John Murray's uh, just pulled this off myself, so I'm just starting to read it, is Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Yes, I totally forgot about that. Probably one of the better books on on that subject, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. So lots of great books on the atonement, but really I, I think it's important, and the reason we went through the biblical text is just to demonstrate from Genesis through Revelation this theme of Jesus dying in in the in the place of his people for their sins. And it's not something that, you know, a bunch of us got in a room and said, you know what, it sounds like a good theory of the atonement. It's no, it, it came from reading scripture. As a matter of fact, I didn't even know what the name of this was when I was growing up. I just, it's what I believed uh, already from reading the scripture. And then when I went to theology class, I was given a name for it. Exactly. And I think that's the most important thing we need to leave on is that any doctrine or theology or system or belief that we get does not come because John Calvin or John Piper or J.I. Packer or these guys articulated it. It comes because it's what the text of Scripture teaches. And our ultimate authority is to go look at the text of Scripture, to do the exegesis, to do the study, to look at the word studies, to look at how it was used in that grammatical historical context. And from the full teaching of Scripture, a biblical theology from Genesis to Revelation, from that we build our systematic theology on the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And so our theology emerges from the text of Scripture as our authority. Right, and, and you know, and like I said, I did, growing up, that's what I believed. I didn't know it had a name. Yeah, and the name is Penal Substitutionary Atonement. And so this has been a great podcast. Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on. Maybe in future podcasts we'll um, have you on again. This has been kind of an issue that Andrew has really dived into because of some situations with his friends. And so I think it's always beneficial to do a personal study on the atonement. Um, I know you've kind of written on this as well and right. um, poss- you know, possibly wanted, wanting to publish that on a blog or other places. And so um, I look forward to seeing the work that you're doing on that. And so, uh, Andrew, do you have any last words to our listeners before we uh, get done with this podcast? <laughs> well, it's been good to be here. It's, I, I've enjoyed this time, and it's refreshing just to consider, you know, what's at the heart heart of the, the Bible, the heart of the gospel. Exactly. And so we thank you for listening to our podcast. Again, if you would go to iTunes and give us a review and rating, it helps us get bumped up in viewership. And if you appreciate this podcast, share us on your social media, uh, tweet us, Facebook us. You can get my contact information at seancole.net. I'd love to hear from you through email or through Facebook or Twitter or even call, call me and we can talk. I would love to have that. So until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and may you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Every